So today's the first step, the first part in a three-part series we're calling Why We Walk Away. Have you ever thought about people who walked away? Recently, the minds of our world was blown when, um, when Prince Harry and his beautiful princess, Meghan Markle, decided to walk away. They just walked away from royalty. They walked away from a palace. They walked away from a king's riches to become commoners in the United States, although I think most of us would admit they are no, not really commoners. Other people have walked away. People have walked away from, from uh, sports careers. People have walked away from Hollywood careers. And people have walked away from success. People have walked away from opportunities. And sometimes we wonder, why do people walk away? Even more importantly, I ask this question, why do we see so many people walking away from faith? We see people walking away from church. We see declines that we'll talk about in this series and reasons for it. But the most stupefying to me of all is really that thought, why is it that we walk away from faith? In the last couple of years, some very high-profile people have actually walked away from faith. Maybe you remember some of them. For example, there's Josh Harris. Josh Harris in 97 wrote an incredible book called I've Kissed Get Dating, Why I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Uh, it was a bestseller. He became a mega church pastor. And yet, later on, Josh Harris wrote these words. He said, I've undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, he says, I am not a Christian. How does a writer walk away? How does a mega church pastor walk away? How does a rural church pastor walk away? And then there's John Steingard. Maybe you remember John Steingard. He's the lead vocalist for the, the Christian rock band, Hawk Nelson. Leading people in worship, gathering people for worship, leading in songs of praise and adoration to the King Jesus, and then he walks away from faith. How is it? that a rock star, a Christian rock star, can walk away from faith. And then maybe you know about Marty Sampson. Marty Sampson is the worship leader for Hillsong, one of the worship leaders for Hillsong. How does a worship leader walk away? Sampson says he feels like he is genuinely losing his faith, and yet he's led people in worship forever. How do we walk away? Sadly, it's not just mega stars. It's not just people with high profiles who walk away from faith. Sadly, it's everyday people. It's people we know. It's people you know and I know. It's people who greatly affect our lives. It's people we love. Sometimes it's a, a, a son or a daughter. Sometimes it's a grandchild. Sometimes it's a spouse. Maybe it's a, a, someone from church that's in a part of our, our life group. Or, or, or maybe it's somebody in the office, in the cubicle next to ours. Maybe it's a fellow student, or, or maybe it's a friend or a relative. And yet we know of people who for unapparent reasons, or at least reasons unbeknownst or ununderstandable to us, just walk away. How do we do that? Why is this happening. It's a real problem today, folks. Now, some might want to write this message off and say, why are you even talking about these things? But I'm convinced that this is a real problem that the church faces today. And part of the reason that it's a real problem is because it is impacting us and we are impacting the problems. So through this series, we're going to talk about that question, why we walk 
away. Why it is that we have this deconstruction of faith, this deconstruction of the church, and why it is that this deconstructive process leaves people with no choice, they feel in their hearts, but to leave. So our purpose in this is to help us try to understand, to point out, hopefully, some reasons why this occurs, and some ideas and some thoughts about how we can perhaps curb this walking away, or at least help. Now, let me start by saying that the subject of deconstruction is not a new phenomenon. It may be a new vocabulary. It may be some new terminology. We may talk about it or categorize it in these new terms, but it's really not a new thing. Things like people walking away from faith happened even in the New Testament times, as many times this problem is addressed by the writers of the epistles in the New Testament. But it is clearly heightened today. Clearly, it's more prominent, and partially because it has a better platform right now. It's this platform we call social media, and social media allows us to say things from a safe viewpoint. It allows us to say things that we might not even say normally. It allows us to uh, have a platform to tell more people about what we're feeling and so forth. So this deconstructionism has made itself into a tidal wave in social media, and now people are making videos to talk about their issues and talk about what's driving them away. I thought it might be good if we just share an example. This is an example from TikTok, just a, 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 an application, a way for people to make a 15-second to one-minute video to express whatever they want to express, whether that's a, a feeling of comedy, whether it's something that happened yesterday that might be of interest, or whether it's a platform to what they're sensing or what they're feeling. So take a look at this video, and you'll get an idea of what we're talking about. Don't pray for me without my consent. And if you're worried enough about something going on in my life to be praying about it, well, you best have actually talked to me about it and asked how you can help. My husband caught up on the phone yesterday with an old friend. And during the course of that conversation, they said, oh, we know AJ's been ill. We've been praying for her. Well, gee, thanks. So they knew that I've been having severe medical issues for over two years, that I had to quit my job, that I was housebound for over a year. And they felt sad enough about that to talk to the big man upstairs, but they couldn't pick up the phone and actually call us to see how we were doing. Praying for someone does not absolve you of your responsibilities as a friend and family member. Because the fact is that it wasn't the Christians in my life who were praying for me who actually helped us while I was ill. They weren't the ones who were offering to buy us groceries, coming to our house, helping us clean or cook us meals. They weren't the ones helping us pay the bills so my husband could take a day off. They weren't the ones offering to cover therapy expenses to help with our mental health. They weren't the ones supporting and promoting my small business to help me earn an income. They weren't even the ones calling to check in and see how we were doing. But thanks for your prayers, I guess. So there you have it. Wow, I don't know how you respond to that, how you react to that. If I'm to be completely transparent, when I see that video, I get on the defensive. I immediately want to react. I immediately want to defend not just my faith, but my friends, people that this young lady's talking about. I immediately want to answer her questions and answer her charges. But that's really not the purpose of this message. The purpose of this message is not to defend or to try to break down this deconstructionist. The idea is, or the point is, we want to talk about why this is occurring. Why it is that people are are disillusioned with what's going on around in the world of faith. We want to talk about why these things come about. Charles Holmes is the college pastor at the Summit Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and a really strong, big church-planting church. 
Charles uh, wrote a, an article for Lifeway Research that I found very interesting. There was a couple of comments in there particularly that struck me. Let me read what he said. Charles said, one of the reasons young people inside and outside of the church are being driven toward these public documentations of deconstruction is their frustration, their frustration and disillusionment with the current state of the church. Wow, that's bothering. Look, some of their frustrations, he adds, some of their frustrations and accusations are misguided and need to be corrected. However, many of the concerns they raise need to be honestly addressed. Man, he is so on point. You see, there is a truth that we need to understand and that sometimes being deconstructive, deconstructing may be helpful. Deconstructing is simply taking down what has been constructed, right? We know that deconstructing can be helpful. No, it can be uh, uh, destructive. It can be destroying, but it can be helpful. For example, you've, you're familiar with remodeling. Maybe you've done a remodel or maybe Fixer Upper is your favorite show on TV. You know about remodels. You know that, under, that, that in order to remodel, before you can reconstruct, what do you have to do? You have to deconstruct, right? You have to tear away what's been constructed in order to reconstruct your new remodel. In a similar way, we need to understand that there are good things about deconstructing. There are some things that need to be addressed. There are some issues that deconstructionists have with the church today that we need to be aware of and we need to address because, frankly, they're right in many of those things. I know that pains us to think that or to say that, and you may call me a traitor, but it's absolutely true. However, the problem is when a deconstruction falls short of reconstruction, we've got a problem. And I'm afraid that's what's happening. Destruction is leading to destroying rather than to reconstruction. What we want to talk about is how can we reconstruct? There are numerous people leaving this faith because they're disillusioned with the church. And you say, well, how are they disillusioned with the church? Pastor, we've got to believe what we believe, and if they don't believe it, they just can't come along. Now, wait a minute. The problem is this. What we find through surveys, through polling, and through talking with people is this. People who are deconstructing church, deconstructing faith, often the problem is not what the church believes. The problem is how the church behaves. Now, there's a big difference. Not what the church believes, but how the church behaves. Behavior is very, very important, right? Peter talks about that in his epistle when he's talking to the women who are married to unbelieving husbands. He says to them, he says, be careful that you can win them over by your godly, what? Behavior. Behavior. Behavior is very important. The disillusionment is with the church's behavior. And thus, the big thought I want to leave you today with, the big thought today that I want us to talk about and explore a little bit is this. The truth is, people are walking away because they don't see Jesus in the church anymore. They see religion. They see piety. They see hypocrisy. They see a lot of things, but they don't often see Jesus. So what do we do about it? This is alarming, and because it impacts us, it deserves our attention. How can we as a church come to the place that once again people can see Jesus when they come to church? 
Almost every Sunday, not everyone, but almost every Sunday, a part of my routine for preparing for the service is, God, is this prayer. God, I pray that when people come in the building today, when people watch online today, they'll not see me, they'll not see others, but they'll see Jesus. They come looking for Jesus. We mustn't disappoint them. So how do we do that? And how do we live in that factor so that people become more important than our own pleasure? How do we get to the point that we do, as Paul says, and we love people and consider people even more than our own selves? That's not in our natural flow. That is not something that, is, that just comes easy for us. It is not easy to prefer others above ourselves. It is counterintuitive to our thinking. So how is it that we shift our thinking to care about people? Well, one thing I'm convinced is this. We must understand our primary purpose and ministry here on this earth. We must understand what we are about. We have to understand the why of our being here before we can address that. Well, the Apostle Paul helps us in his letter to the Corinthians. We call it 2 Corinthians. Now, it's a little bit... Uh, interesting because most scholarship believes that this is Paul's third letter to the church at Corinth. One of them perhaps lost, one of them perhaps just not included in scripture. But this second letter of Corinthians is addressing a problem, a couple of problems that were addressed in 1 Corinthians and how the church behaved. When Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthians, he gave them some advice and some thoughts. And then he watched how they behaved and he wrote the second letter. And in the fifth chapter of the second letter to the Corinthians, we find an interesting section where Paul deals with how we as a church are to understand our mission and our cause. Now, let me set the background for you a little bit before I begin reading. If you want to go ahead and begin finding 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I'll get there in a moment. In the first part of the chapter, though, something happens very familiar and very important. The apostle talks about what happens after we die. He talks about <clears throat> eternity. He talks about our bodies and what happens to our bodies at death. Now, isn't it interesting? That's something that interests all of us, and, and we want to get interested in Paul and what he's thinking here about these bodies. Understand that there was a struggle then, just as there's a struggle now. The struggle was to somehow find a way to have culture and church and doctrine get along. How is it that those two work together? The problem is, in the Corinthian church, the culture had invaded the church to the point that it was affecting the church adversely, and Paul needed to correct that. Well, how interesting. Even though that was 2,000 years ago, we still have the same struggles today. How do we keep culture from affecting us um, adversely, and yet, how do we treat culture in a way that we are able to accomplish our mission, which Paul will say in these verses is a ministry of reconciliation. I'll get to that. Now, let me say this before I jump into the text. So Paul is dealing with this subject of eternity. He likens our bodies to tents. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we probably all heard at an open grave somewhere, at a graveside service where somehow we, we hold to these words, 
holding on to the truth of these words in times of, of, of hurt and times of the loss of a loved one or a friend. And, and we hold to these words where Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He says these bodies are like tents. They're like, what's a tent? A tent is not a permanent dwelling. It's a temporary dwelling. Uh, he, he says these tents are temporary. Our time on this earth is temporary. He calls us in another place aliens, just passing through this world. Our real home is heaven. Our real home is the kingdom of God. We're just now passing through. But there's an interesting thought that I want you to see here that I think is very important. What we need to understand is Paul is going to say the assurance that we will leave these disposable bodies behind when we enter into the presence of our Lord. Listen, clothed in our glorious new bodies is no excuse for being careless about the way we live now. <laughs> it's no excuse. We can't just say, well, because we're only in these temporary bodies and really my mind is in heaven, my heart is in heaven, and I'm just passing through this. It's not an excuse for us to live however we want to live. It's not an excuse, my friend, to be a jerk while we're here on the earth. Now, let's say what he has to say. He's going to tell us now how we are then to live on this earth. And it all centers around, as uncomfortable as it might be to you, it all centers around how we treat others. All right? Let's dig in. Beginning with verse, verse 14, here's what we see. First of all, he says, we are compelled by love. Our motivation is love. Everything he's going to say, everything he's going to teach from here on out needs to begin here in verse 14. I'd like to skip on to verse 20 and 21 and show you where our, where our duty lies, where our purpose lies, but it has to begin here because we'll never accomplish our mission if we don't understand these verses. We are compelled by love. Verse 14 says this, For the love of Christ compels us. It constrains us. It drives us. It's our motivation. What is the love of Christ? I can't dig into this too much, but suffice this to say, listen, it's not our love for people. It's his love that is shed abroad in our hearts. You're not going to be able to love people. I'm not going to be able to love people the way he's going to tell us that we're to love them. But the love of Christ indwelling us does give us that option. The love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all. Now he's getting to the gospel. Here's the gospel. Jesus died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live, that's us, should live no longer or should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. In other words, Paul is saying that you're not your own. You're bought with a price. You have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're his. You're his follower, not just in name, not just in reputation. You're his follower by birth into his kingdom, by birth into his family, by the adoption that you have into his kinship. We must understand that we are not our own. Our lives are for Christ. Our lives are for his glory. Our lives are for the sake of the kingdom. Verse 16. He says, from now on, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. In other words, we're going to see people differently now. Because of what's happened to us, we're going to see people from a different perspective, through a different lens. We're, we're going to be looking through a whole different filter. Oh, that's so important. A 
just wish I could just almost stamp that in bold and italics and highlight it and underline it and say, don't miss that. We're looking at people now through a different perspective, a different filter. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. We need to understand that as we're motivated by Christ, we're motivated by his love. We see people with a different filter, through a different filter, with a different perspective, and we love them. Now listen carefully. That means we love them in spite of the fact that they don't love us. That is, I'm patient with somebody even though they are frustrating me, even though they're agitating me. It means that I care for people even though they don't care for me. You know how hard that is? It means that I am for people even if they are against me. That's a strong statement, but hang on, it's going somewhere. He's moving somewhere with this. He's just reminding us that we are compelled by the love of Christ and we view through a different perspective. The second thing he says is we are called to reconciliation. We're called to reconciliation. He says, verse 18, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. You see, we are reconciled with God through Christ. I don't have time to talk about all of it, but you can search the scriptures and what you find is that man was created in the image of God and in fellowship with God. But one day sin came into the world and all that was broken and the relationship between God and man was broken seemingly forever. But Christ came and through his plan of redemption, through his purchase of our, uh, our salvation, through his blood, he re- reconciled the relationship between God and man. It's an incredible story. And guess what? That message, he says, verse 19, that message has been committed to us, and it has become our ministry. We are called to reconciliation. My friend, listen to me carefully. We are called to share with people, people who love us and people who don't, people who are like us and people who are different than us, people who think like us and people who don't think like us, all people, we are called to share with them this wonderful message of reconciliation. And nothing, nothing is more important than that. And then he adds, we are commissioned as ambassadors. Look at verse 20 and 21. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, you know what an ambassador is, right? It's a representation. We represent Christ just as an ambassador to Europe uh, represents the U.S. Uh, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors of his kingdom. We are ambassadors for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of men. We are ambassadors for Christ. He says, since God is making his appeal through us. I don't know why God chose to do this, but he's chosen you and I, his followers. He's chosen us, his children. He's chosen us to be the one who gives the appeal to come to this kingdom. He says, therefore, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. How many people have you been pleading for in prayer? How many people do you know that you're pleading for that they would come to Christ, that they would be reconciled with God? Verse 21 but he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might have become the righteousness of 
God. Wow. That's the message. That Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us. That our sin might be dealt with, might be forgiven, might be judged on the cross, so that we could have eternal life. That we could be reconciled with God and live with God forever. That's our calling. That's our mission. That's what we're about. We are ambassadors. We are representations of him to a world. I was at my grandson's graduation in Keystone Heights not long ago, and at there, the principal actually gave a really nice address, and in that address, she said, talked about how the students represent or are ambassadors of sort of their school. And a high school team goes to play ball. They go to another game. They go to an away game, and they wear those, those uniforms. And somewhere on those uniforms is the, the school name or the mascot or something. And as they are what? They are ambassadors. How many times have you heard a coach say, look, guys, look, ladies, we are going here, and with this name on our jersey, we represent not only you, you represent your team, you represent your school, you represent your community. You are ambassadors. But we are ambassadors for Christ. And we must bear his name. And it's important for us to understand that the most important thing for us is to share a ministry of reconciliation. Now, friend, listen to me. Where this enters into this whole picture is this. Even people who are deconstructing what we believe, even people who are deconstructing the way we gather, even people who don't like me, don't like you, don't like us, we're to love and we're to share this message with. And the truth of the matter is we can't get off on side trails and distracted from our main purpose. We're not called to make Democrats or Republicans. We're not called to make left-wing liberals or right-wing radicals. We're not called... To, to win popularity contests, or we're not called to, to be jerks or to speak the truth. Well, I'm speaking the truth, and I don't care what anybody thinks. It does matter, because our ministry relies upon the fact that we have a platform with some people. It's important that we understand that, yes, indeed, it does matter how we treat people, and that people are watching us and as they watch us, they're looking to see Christ. And if they don't see Christ in us, it gives them great excuse to walk away. Yes, deconstruction can be helpful. Oftentimes, however, it's destructive and not helpful. And sometimes it ends there, but needs to lead to reconstruction. How do we reconstruct our faith? How do we reconstruct our gatherings? How do we reconstruct who we are so that people can see Christ in us? It's very important. So I want to leave you with this thought, and then we'll pick it up again next week. I want to challenge you, encourage you. Don't be the reason someone walks away. I know that's a heavy load. That's a lot to pin on you. That's a lot of responsibility to carry. But that's part of the cross that we carry. That's part of the responsibility that we accept when we follow Christ. We become his follower. We take up his cross and follow him. And we bear that responsibility. We don't, be, we don't want to be an excuse for somebody else to walk 
away. If people are walking away from faith because they don't see Jesus in the church, that's a problem that should get our attention. Now the problem is, probably some listening today have the same struggle that I have. And that is we want to get defensive. We want to say, well, it's not me. You know, yeah, I'm glad you're talking about this to somebody else. It's not in my life. Uh, you know what? Hold on a minute. Let's don't cast this away too quickly. Let's examine our own hearts and our own lives. Let's examine our own motivations. Let's examine our own agendas for life. Are we, are we operating under the agenda of the new kingdom or are we operating under the agenda of the old kingdom? Are we seeking the glory of Christ and the reconciliation of God and man or are we only concerned about our own success, our own moving forward, our own good feeling, our own thoughts, our own preservation of the truth, our own political agendas, our own church agendas, religious, whatever. Let's just stop and let's just reflect and let's just think and let's just pray, God, is there something in my life in my church, in my behavior, is there something that is making it easier for someone to walk away? Now, I'm not blaming you for someone walking away. Don't mishear me. It's their choice. I get that. But we don't have to make it easier. We don't have to make it so convenient. Now's the time to act. Now's the time to think. And perhaps now's the time to repent. So as we conclude and as we pray, maybe something that we said today has struck you. Maybe something in this conversation is something you need to pray about, think about. Maybe you need help with. Maybe you need counsel. Maybe you just need to talk to someone. You know what? There's someone waiting live right now to talk with you. There's someone waiting right now for your click. There's someone waiting for you right now to just tap into the resource and say, hey, I need you to pray with me. I need you to think with me through. I need you to talk me through this thing. There's somebody available, ready to help. Yes, online, but more importantly, there's someone in heaven waiting for you to call upon him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your work in our lives. And God, I pray that this message would sink deep into our souls and we would forever be changed for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.